Hello and welcome again to Sport Unlocked, the podcast giving you the lowdown on the week's sports news as ever. We're grateful you can hit subscribe so we automatically land in your pod feeds to hear from myself, Rob Harris from the Associated Press, Tarap Hanger from the New York Times and Martin Ziegler from the Times. Well, we're beginning with a focus on swimming and a big announcement from the governing body of aquatics, FINA, on transgender participation and that is banning transgender athletes from competing in women's categories. Yeah, this is a, a sort of fairly um, major decision for, for international elite sport. And I think prompted by the emergence of, of Leah Thomas in the US college swimming, um, somebody who had sort of blitzed some um, women's records. And so Leah Thomas had, had raced for the college in the male teams and then transitioned a couple of years ago. So what FINA have done is they've said, in elite competition, anyone who's been through male puberty cannot compete as a woman. Now, that has been welcomed by a lot of sort of campaigners, people like Sharon Davis, we've had on this podcast, but it's infuriated um, pro-trans groups um, who believe that's transphobic. Well, Martin, we, we talked about this, well, issue, I think on several of these episodes, it's been kind of the red button issue for sports over the last couple of years and it's that question thorny question about um fairness versus inclusion right whether it's fair to the other competitors or whether sports should be inclusive and um, for swimming they've gone for for fairness well the decision came at fina's congress in budapest 71 percent of their national federations backed the rules and one of the athletes to support fina was the olympic champion from australia Kate Campbell, and uh, this is what she had to say in Budapest. To put it simply, without fair competition, sport in its elite form would cease to exist. Now, usually inclusion and fairness go hand in hand. To create a place that is inclusive is to create a space that is fair. Transgender, gender diverse, and non-binary athletes' inclusion in the female category of elite sport is one of the few occasions where these principles come into, contact, come into conflict. The incongruity that inclusion and fairness cannot always work together is one of the reasons why it is so difficult to talk about this topic. Usually they are terms of absolutes which work together, yet science now tells us that in this issue they are incompatible, that men and women are physiologically different cannot be disputed. We are now only beginning to understand and explore the origins of these physiological differences and the lasting effects of exposure to differing hormones. Women who have fought long and hard to be included as equals in sport can only do so because of the gender category distinction. To remove this distinction would be to remove, would be to the detriment of female athletes everywhere. The creation of this policy did not stem from feelings. What we felt was the right thing to do. The policy was created with the inclusion of medical professionals, legal professionals, athletes, coaches, and people from the transgender community. It is a policy that pays attention to inclusion, but prioritizes fairness. I mean, if somebody has those feelings, obviously they're more at liberty to feel that. But yeah, I do understand why people look at Leah Thomas and say that's unfair and th you know this is somebody who races a man who's now taking a woman's place. Um, I think the FINA decision is, is actually 
um, quite a good one. Uh, but I, I, it is going to be absolutely controversial for people like Leah Thomas. It means she won't get, she won't be able to compete in these elite competitions. So what happens next? Sounds like they're going to have an open category, whether that's men oh, that replaces the men's category. Um, I think that's probably quite likely. Um, I've been trying to push the the International Olympic Committee to say whether they would accept that at the Olympics, and they've sort of straight battered it. Um, so that you know they, they they will hold talks in the future. Um, but it's uh, it's certainly a very interesting uh, development. Suggestion of a separate category for trans athletes. Clearly, there are not as many that we know of to be able to compete, and it then restricts them away from what is currently the main competition. Yeah, and also. There was never going to be a perfect solution here. Someone was always going to lose. That you couldn't please everyone, um, and, the, and the FINA decision obviously here doesn't please everyone. Doesn't please Leah Thomas or other trans athletes. One one would have thought, but this is the this is the the thorny rocky road that that they're going to go along. I can't. Can you can you see can you see a situation where everyone's going to be happy, guys? Well, at the heart of it, it comes down to. In respecting the also personal wishes and also the welfare of the athletes too. The FINA policy says that this ban on transgender and intersex women competing in uh, women's competition takes effect if they didn't begin medical treatment to suppress testosterone production either before the onset of puberty or by the age of 12. That's whichever comes later. I mean, I think you know, if when we're seeing the likelihood of legislation to prevent under 16s taking um, hormones to, to transition. I think what this effectively does is rules out it rules out anyone who transitions from taking part in uh, in, in female competition in the future. Um, and I think Fina, what Fina have done, they, they've sort of set themselves uh, uh, up as a an example, which I think a lot a lot of other sports are probably going to follow now. And we have also been hearing from the World Athletics President, Seb Coe, who's been saying the decision of swimming's governing body does seem to be in the best interest of sport. So we could see athletics following swimming with a very similar policies. Yeah, we've we've had the International Rugby League. They've adopted the same policy. Um, I've been speaking to a senior person at FIFA about football's policy. Um, uh, I think they're still in consultation. But I think what they will, they will either come up, they will either follow um, the swimming lead or they will do something which the International Cycling Union did a couple of weeks ago and reduce the amount of testosterone levels that are permitted. So it was five, take it down to 2.5 nanomoles per litre, um, which is the sort of top level of testosterone that, appear, that uh, appears naturally in, in women. Um, It'd be an interesting way to say which which way football goes on that, but I should point out that, that we're talking about elite competition. That's different from grassroots. So Debbie Hewitt, the uh, chairwoman of the, the Football Association, said this week that um, it's about uh, fairness as well as competition and uh, and inclusion, fairness as well as as inclusion. But she did say um, it's likely to be have a different approach from grassroots. Uh, to elite football and I think the German Football Association they've come out this week as well and um, 
with their own policy, but this is for amateur football. Yeah, the DFB saying actually it'll be up to transgender, intersex or non-binary players to choose for themselves whether to play in men's or women's teams. And they're very much focused on this self-determination. And DFB are saying as long as the sporting activity does not affect the health of the person while they're taking medication, the person can take part in the game, which is why which is why the new regulation excludes doping relevance. So the DFB coming out ahead of FIFA, I mean, it really is waiting for FIFA to come to a position to take a global lead on this, to guide 211 member associations, really. Of course, one of the most high-profile examples that ended up at the Court of Arbitration for Sport was in athletics with the South African runner, Casta Semenya. Yeah, that was a that was a sort of very... Uh, that, that, almost that, that case sort of focus a lot of minds in sport around transgender athletes. Now, Acasa Semenya is not a transgender athlete. She's, she has differences of sexual development and DSD. Um, and I actually thought at the time of the, of the Cass case that there was a, a very good argument that was put forward by Roger Pionk Jr., the, who's a, an American sports and political scientist. He, he said that he was encouraging athletics to take on this thing that anybody who's been raised as a girl from birth should be allowed to compete as a woman. Um, and I thought that was a really good um, way of tackling Roger was part of Castor's team at Cast, though, right? Is that correct? Yeah. She was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, as was um, as was Ross Tucker, actually. Uh, he was also part of Castor's team. And, you know, Ross Tucker has been one of the, the people who's advised World Rugby to, to, to bring in the, the, the rule about um, not having transgender women players who, who've gone through male puberty playing playing in women's rugby. So, um, But I think that that would allow people who've been raised as, as, as girls to stay as women um, and to compete as women. And I think that's, that was, for me, that, I thought that's quite a, a, a good way of tackling What does that mean, raised as, raised as girls in, in a DSD scenario or raised as girls more broadly? But I mean, raises girls. Uh, so, like for Casa Semenya, which she you know, she was raised as a girl. You know, her she she was always seen as a girl. She and, still is, uh, and, and, and she still it was is. Only, isn't she? She, she she is. Yeah, she absolutely still is. It was only it's only until World Athletics decided that she should be referred to as biologically male that it it's, that took on a sort of different. Um, because of her chromosomes, that, that took, on, took on different connotations. And you can listen back to a couple of episodes where we go a lot more in depth on the whole transgender participation issue from last June, where we spoke to a couple of experts and also to, when we spoke to Sharon Davis back in March as well. Well, moving on now to the location that Martin is at. He's speaking to us from Headingley, where England are currently playing New Zealand in the second test of the cricket series. So what's it been like there at Headingley? At one point last year, there'd have been no prospects of actually England hosting games there because of the, the fallout from the Azim Rafiq racism scandal. Absolutely. It's in fact, as I was walking into the ground, just about the first person I saw was the Yorkshire chairman, Lord Patel. Um, and I said, uh, I said, oh, how's it feeling? And he said, oh, well, you know, it's only just sunk in the enormity of what they've achieved in managing to get this test match on um, after being stripped of that uh, the privilege initially. So um, I think it's a sort of big day for Yorkshire, but also a sort of things have been, it's also been a, 
uh, a sort of focal point for complaints over the 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 ECB, the England and Wales Cricket Board's um, inquiry in, into the the whole scandal, and sort of questions being raised about why it wasn't a properly independent um, investigation because um, it should really have looked at the you know the ECB's own involvement in it and. Um, that really people believe that hasn't been tackled adequately and the latest step is the ecb have charged seven individuals haven't they and we're waiting the outcome of that and yorkshire the club itself um so that's a sort of disciplinary process i mean the ecb would probably uh, they would probably insist that it's a sort of arm's length disciplinary commission but it's still under their auspices so i think it's fair enough point uh, Roger Hutton, the former Yorkshire chairman, made it. He said, look, you know, the ECB knew about the uh, Azim Rafiq allegations before he did and didn't do anything, didn't support them, didn't take it seriously. You know, why is that? And, uh, you know, we we love to talk about the independent regulators on this programme, on this podcast, don't we, Tarek? And, um, we, we do. But I tell you, I've got a question. You're, you're in Yorkshire. You're at this. Just, just um, are people a little bit, how are they feeling about all of this? Obviously, you've got to make the public statements. You've got to say, you know, this racism has to be kicked out. Yorkshire has changed. And all. But, but uh, do Yorkshire people feel a little bit under siege at all? What, what's, the, you know, the vibe, as it were? You know, do people think they're a bunch of racists, don't they? I think Yorkshire you know, Yorkshire County members feel sort of, a lot of them feel very defensive about this and they believe like, you know, the full story hasn't come out and they've been unfairly labelled. But, you know, talking to people who go and watch it who aren't specifically members, I think they think it's a sort of embarrassing episode for, for the for the county and something something that's better that, that it's come out and be dealt with and hopefully be a positive step for the whole game. This is an investigation that began in 2020. Rafiq talking about the culture of racism that he experienced while playing for Yorkshire, the derogatory terms that were directed towards him and just the all-round discrimination. He said Asian players felt there. And of course, you mentioned Lord Patel. He is part of the changes at Yorkshire, isn't he? The new chairman who's coming in recent uh, months. Yeah, he he was a former director of of the ECB. Um, he stepped down and he was asked to. to he, I mean, he's from Yorkshire, and he was asked to come in and um, take over. And um, it's been a sort of a pretty difficult time. That you know they they sacked a lot of people. They're then hit with a lot of unfair dismissal claims, which could be very very costly. But I think they they probably had to take those decisions and accept that there were going to be these claims. Otherwise. Um, the county would have gone bust, I think, if it, hadn't had, if it wasn't hosting events like this. But to think cricket more broadly, guys, I find it very hard to think this is a very isolated issue within Yorkshire, uh, if I'm honest. Um, this is a club that is under the microscope, the one with all the, all the claims and all the, all the cases you guys have just referenced. Um, my, is there, a, there is a wider review of, of cricket, is there, or, or of culture across the sport, or, or not really? Or is this going to be... Damn you, Yorkshire! Let's move on. There's a review of dressing room culture, um, which is one of the, one of the things that's taking place, uh, but not a sort of wider review of cricket, cricket, cricket itself. And I think that's what some people think should have happened. Actually, a bit like the sort of you know the, the review of football governance, the family review that that took place after the Super League thing. There should have been a, a similar look for for the whole of cricket. Yeah, you just worry if if this just kind of touches the sides and there's this one moment, and then you know 
people move on again. You know, sometimes you need these big moments because if even if it is happening elsewhere or happened elsewhere, it will be stamped out because people will be too afraid of what's happened to these guys happening to them rather than them not being racist. They'll they'll just um, you know not want to face what Yorkshire did, perhaps. As we saw with the way the ECB reacted to the whole investigation, all the concerns that Rafiq came forward with initially and, and their slowness to, to act. Yeah, I mean, I, I think probably, you know, the departure of the ECB chief executive, Tom Harrison, is probably partly linked to this whole this whole issue and the, and the, the fact that it, that it wasn't dealt with properly at the time. Um, they would probably deny that and say he always wanted to go, but I, I think it was probably a fairly uncomfortable time for him. Departures in, in football as well, uh, perhaps not that surprising. Uh, Chelsea... Marina Granovskaya and Bruce Buck, long-time allies of Roman Abramovich, the chairman, and, and Marina, the director, responsible for football affairs, transfers and the like. They're, they're on their way. Anyone surprised by that? Well, it seemed like an inevitability once the takeover went through, what, a month or so ago now? Todd Bowley, the new part-owner of Chelsea, the co-owner of the Los Angeles Dodgers, and he's now installed himself not only as chairman, but interim sporting director too. Can you believe that he's going to be sporting director as well as everything else? Well, also, uh, qualifications. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I think people get very excited about coming into football. And, you know, it's the middle of the transfer market. And, you know, if I'm an agent or whatever, I don't know, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. But, you know, this usually doesn't end well. I mean, it is getting (laughs) thrown at the deep end, isn't it? in a transfer window, a time when they've got to try to climb up back to the top again to try to overhaul Liverpool, Manchester City and the Premier League alone and Romelu Lukaku to move on and other deals to be there. And there he is. I mean, I'm sure he's been studying it from afar, but actually being there in the thick of it as a newcomer will be an interesting moment from face-to-face with some of the agencies getting to know and directors of of other clubs too that he's doing business with or trying to at least. Yeah, it it could be a sort of... A, a sort of terrible failure it could be a roaring success or somewhere in between. Obviously, that's like I just given every every single option there, which is a bit stupid. But uh, I think to go for, to be chairman to be chairman and interim sporting director. They were I looking mean, for a centre forward as well. Now Lukaku's gone. Maybe he could uh, do a job yeah. for the last uh, last ten minutes. But they need a goal. <laughs> well, perhaps some research you might want to look at when is assessing just what value you can get in the transfer market and how it translates to the points was done by you, wasn't it, Martin, this week? And actually, what Manchester United, bottom of the Premier League table for return on money spent and wages and transfers. Uh, who, who was top of that? Liverpool, actually. Um, so, yeah, this was quite an interesting thing I did with um, uh, so Kieran Maguire, football finance guy, and Omar Chowdhury from 21st Group. Um where we sort of looked at the the wages and transfer spending um, of all the Premier League clubs, and not just not just over the transfer spending over the last season, but the amortisation, so like over the last few seasons. Uh, and in a way, some of these things are sort of obvious. In that you'd say, yes, obviously Manchester United performed really badly, but actually, just quite how badly they did it, 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 compared to the money spent, it, 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 I thought was pretty remarkable. So they got 19 points less than they should have got based on their on their spending levels. Well, we heard from Richard Arnold himself, the Manchester United chief executive in the last week, where he talked about they'd burn through a billion pounds. Although we heard these comments actually with him talking at a pub with Manchester United fans who secretly recorded him, which 
seems a bit harsh. I mean, completely out of order, I would say, on the fans who he's actually chosen to engage with. And they've recorded him. Yes, some journalists do undertaking undercover recording when you need to try and expose something that can't be uncovered another way. But it seemed like a moment Richard Arnold tried to engage and gave a realistic state of affairs at the club. He was turned over a bit, wasn't he, by the fans? Yeah, I suppose he was there. He was in good faith. But there's also this issue about the fans showing up um, at the homes of of executives, players, you know, where their families are as well. And I think that's why he took them to the pub. Um, it can't be the the most comfortable situation. He, I, I, I guess he won't be doing that again. And that probably when, when fans are asking for more engagement, probably isn't, isn't, isn't the best. But maybe, it's, maybe clubs should have more of these opportunities, maybe not in the pub down the road from your house, but, um, you know, at the stadium to talk and engage with fans in a more open and transparent way then we don't have to have this type of thing happening. Yeah, other, other interesting points. I mean, I think in a way it's, you, you know who's going to be near the top. But yeah, Spurs were the second second highest um, performers and then Brentford, West Ham and Brighton. Martin, where were Manchester um, City? Because they, they've obviously been spending very carefully over the years and... Um, you know, tight budget there. How, how have they done on that on that table? Yeah, so yeah, obviously that the, they won the Premier League, Manchester City. So they've done pretty well. That they, they were sixth in the list, um, and down the bottom, also uh, Everton, which again is probably not a surprise given how much money they've spent, and Watford. And actually, Everton, it, they if you looked at it in another way, they they were also you could also claim they were the worst performing club because in terms of they where they where they finished in the table, which was sixteenth. That uh, that is the biggest disparity from where they are on the spending table. So they were eighth in the spending table, but sixteenth in the actual table at the end of the season. So a lot of work there to do to turn that club around. There's been another another takeover as well in the world of football, and a guy, a prolific buyer of football teams, a guy called John Texter. An American guy. He owns a bit of Crystal Palace. He bought Botafogo in in Brazil because clubs there are in the last couple of years. You're able to invest in those, and he's he's probably his biggest investment so far is buying almost all of the stake in in in, in Lyon. So after Paris Saint Germain, I would argue Lyon with Marseille are, are the next biggest teams in France. And this guy is collecting a a constellation. Wicket. That's Wicket, sorry. Uh, and th- this guy's collecting a, a constellation of, of football teams. I'm not sure how successful he's going to be, but again, it's another example of this multi-club model. What sort of value are we looking at with this takeover? How, what does it price Leon at? <laughs> price is Leon at almost a billion dollars. Uh, for me, slightly surprising given it's the French League, the TV rights there collapsed. It's got a decent stadium, I suppose. Um, and France have got that extra place, coefficient place in the in the Champions League. So maybe, maybe, so more more likelihood of playing in that top competition, pushed in there. But I'd like to talk to this. I don't know if either of you two have. I'm not sure what what his plans are. Um, he's been quite prolific on Twitter. Last week he asked. I thought it was a bit over the top. He asked for a referee to be sacked in Brazil after after a penalty decision, which you know for me isn't, isn't quite normal. But but again. He seems quite engaged in, in in these in these investments. And Leon have made big investments in uh, women's football. They are the reigning Champions League winners after beating Barcelona the other week. So that's been an area where 
they've realized that Leon, if you target some investment towards that, you can have great success in the women's game, comparatively smaller investment than the men's game to, to reap the rewards of trophies. Yeah, that's not the only uh, multi-club takeover that's happening at the moment um, because it looks like the City Football Group, Manchester City's owners, um, are going to buy Palermo. Uh, just been promoted to Serie B. Um, so that's a, another one to add to the the list. With They've got Melbourne City, Girona, New York City FC, Yokohama. So just one... What is the reason, do you think, for buying all these clubs? What, what does it do for the City Football Group? For, for most of them, like the team in Uruguay, for example, Torque in Uruguay, tiny team, Palermo, Serie B, these are, for me, potentially staging posts for moving talent around, growing talent maybe, uh, with, with, with Manchester City, the, the, the main beneficiary of the best players, maybe. We haven't seen too much flow, though, between between these teams yet. Um, apart from that, they're not, they're not enormous, not going to be big teams in, in, in the leagues they're in. Uh, so it's, 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 it's quite hard to, to, to see that beyond this kind of transfer talent um, market academy situation. Can you see anything else? I don't know. Do you know, is it possible in terms of like, if, you know, if, you, if you're spending a lot of money, can you spread your... Sp- Spending in terms of FFP calculations, can you spread it a bit more, a bit wider? Yeah, I mean that's what some people have speculated about this. But what a complex way of financial fair play, I guess. But that they, they they do have the opportunity to to do that. They got the wherewithal, they've got the reach, and and you know Manchester City have been embroiled in financial fair play um, controversy. Excuse me for for such a for such a long time, maybe. Uh, again, it would be. It's just so hard to pin anything down when it comes to FFP. And who's looking? Of course, Manchester City insists it's all about building an umbrella of network of clubs and not to do with any sort of financial regulations at all, as they sort of seek to expand to multiple countries and build up the uh, the group. Um, as for yeah, but who's who's going to see? Sorry, just on that. But who who is going to see these tiny teams that Man City own? What when they're building this group up? Like, there's a, there's, I can't imagine in 15, 20 years it's going to be an enormous appeal to go and watch Palermo, even if they've been in Serie A, but they're not going to be this enormous football club. Same as the one in Uruguay. Um, they were looking to get one in, in the Netherlands, and there was a protest, if I remember, and they were stopped from buying that because the fans protested there. The, the idea of what you just said, having this group of global clubs... It's not to have successful football teams that are going to be champion teams in their league by the sounds of it, though. You've got maybe in the MLS, um, New York City, Japan, Yokohama, perhaps. But what's the point of the rest of these? It's also an outpost of Abu Dhabi. You've got your flag in each of those countries in whatever sort of scale. And, well, as we've seen with Qatar and Paris Saint-Germain, they've yet to buy any additional clubs. Qatar only has the one club under the PSG umbrella still, and it's a challenging enough time for the French champions. We have been hearing this week from Nasser Al-Khalifi, who's been going on a bit of a media tour across Europe, suddenly saying that they don't want to be flashy bling-bling, trying to move away from this celebrity image, but it's not really reflected with the signings or how they run the club, really, I would say, at the moment, unless this is a new direction we're yet to see. And we certainly see the frustration spill over when they go out of competitions like the Champions League they're trying to, Champions League they're trying to win. 
Is he talking about the fact that that they didn't go for Zidane? To mean that's a, like a flashy signing. They're going to go for a sort of Galtier, who's a sort of less high-profile person. Maybe it's that. But yeah, when you've got Messi and Neymar and Mbappe, I don't, I don't think you can say you're not bling bling. No, and they, I think Neymar recently re- renewed his contract this week, and obviously Mbappe. We talked about that. He's he's there for another three years. Um, but but Nasser Al Khalifi is again such an interesting figure, isn't he? Um, with those jobs, multiple jobs, man with perhaps the most jobs in football, given the fact he you know runs BN, runs PSG, uh, head of the ECA European Clubs Association, you know UEFA board member. I mean, you run out of breath trying to, trying to say all of that in one in one go. Um, but his 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 those ties sort of came up. Recently, didn't they? There was the ruling finally after three months, the UEFA disciplinary investigation into his behaviour and, and, and Paris Saint-Germain's former sporting director, Leonardo's behaviour after their elimination in the Champions League to, to Real Madrid in March. We finally got a conclusion last Friday, late in the evening, in the middle of a disciplinary pack with other, with other announcements. It was kind of slipped in there. What did it say? Well, it made no mention of him. There was none at all. We knew initially that he'd been charged, but then when it came to the verdict, obviously no mention at all. We just discovered the now departed sporting director as a one-match ban from European competition, but no mention of Al Khalifi was there in, in it. No, no, and and a ten grand fine. And you know what I found interesting? There's loads of interesting things with this, and things we'll probably never know how the machinery, disciplinary machinery of UEFA works. It's quite opaque, but. Normally, and I've been following this because UEFA have been very helpful throughout this season, they'll, they'll email the press every couple of weeks when the disciplinary group has gone through their um, analysis and they tell us you know, who, who's, who's going to be investigated and who's been punished. And normally these things take two or three weeks. This thing took three months and we didn't get an email uh, or any, anything, any advice that this has happened. It was just kind of slipped into the document. I wonder why they wanted to do that. Well, I did get messaged around the fact there was a document in existence without the actual specifics. But yes, they do often send around. No, no, there, there, were, there is. It's on. You can see it. I'm not. I'm not saying a document doesn't exist. It's. It's online. What I'm saying is that they would email the press every time the 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 disciplinary sanctions are out. And just for this case, for for this current, we just didn't get any. And it was Friday night at seven. It was. It was very odd. Yeah, I think um, UEFA should have announced it specifically because it, it's you know there's there's too many connections for it to they need to be above completely transparent when it's something like this one of their own executive committee members being investigated they, why why not be transparent it's a really good question and uh, you know and they they get frustrated when people ask these questions but i'm sure they they see it too and and the longer people don't talk about it, the more the more the kind of fire and the flames sort of burn, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. Well, from Qatari investment in sport to Saudi backing, and the live golf controversy does continue. And uh, another departure from the PGA Tour to them this week. Brooks Kepper has gone, and amid a outcry from Rory McIlroy, one of the most high-profile players to reject the. Rich is on offer from the uh, Saudi back Rebel Tour. Yeah, it's quite a big blow for the PGA that he was like nineteenth in the world. He's only thirty-two. You know, one of the, one of the sort of top young stars 
So I think they'll have been really sort of devastated that he's leaving. Um, and then you've got um, his brother's already there, obviously Dustin Johnson. So it's um, it, it's. I think it'll be a really big one for the for Liv because they'll think, oh, you know, the people who claim that this is a, a tour of mainly of, of sort of has beens and veterans that look, we've got some young people. So. It's, you know, there's a lot of money, isn't there? Huge amounts of money, and it's and it it's they're dangling this cash carrot, and it's working. And John Moyn, John Moynihan, the PGA um, tour head, he, he he made the point. Look, we can't compete. We've heard this in football as well, haven't we? I suppose we can't compete if a nation state is trying to buy golf, which is what's happening. We we, we we're not even going to get into that. But there have been some some some. It's pushed P, the PGA tour to to try and. Um, make some changes but there yeah then there's no way that um any kind of sports organization is able to organically compete with a nation state intent on, on buying a sport and i guess that's what we're seeing and and then brooks kopka he it's kind of reputation shredding at least in the short term because he he last week was having a go at the press for for asking questions about live golf saying it's creating a, a dark cloud and a distraction i, I pretty much suggesting that wasn't something he was going to do. And that was a, only, only a week ago. And then here we are um, introducing your new signing. Yeah, it's not gone down well with golfers like McElroy. And we're now counting down to the second event on the Live Golf Series. It goes to the United States and Portland, Oregon. And obviously, interesting if they do sign any more players before then. Well, one high-profile sports star who's been in Saudi Arabia this week is Anthony Joshua, along with Alexander Ursic, because they've been holding their press conference ahead of their Boxing World Heavyweight title rematch, which is going to be in Jeddah on August the 20th. And sports washing did come up, and Joshua said, didn't know what it was. And he did talk about how he's treated really well in Saudi Arabia. All that allegation stuff for me, I'm not caught up in any of it. And he said, I'm here to have a good time. And bring entertainment to Saudi, but he doesn't know what sports washing is. Well, no, no. I mean, he he pretty much is doing it as he's saying those quotes in in a way. If you want to think about it, that's a uh, a man who is being treated very well, being paid handsomely, endorsing uh, a regime looking to rebrand its image. So, from Saudi Arabia, thank you to Anthony Joshua. Yeah, this is uh, Anthony jo- Anthony Joshua, who quite interestingly uh, been with Sky all his career since he turned professional now has gone with DAZN and part of the deal for that is he gets some shares he becomes a shareholder <laughs> I don't think he's going to get any dividends in the next uh, in the next few months is he because this is DAZN um, who we've mentioned before have just about every year have reported huge losses well yeah more than a billion dollars for the last couple of years so uh, he'll be waiting a while for for his payout, be um, interesting to see what happens with with the zone. Um, but anyway, Joshua doesn't really need those dividends, does he? What did he say? Roughly, he's being treated quite well at the moment from by Saudi Arabia. Yeah, and it's uh, going to be pretty hot there in August for that fight, and heated perhaps not just in the ring, but also as the questions that Joshua might be facing. But uh, that about brings an end to this week's episode of Sport Unlocked. For myself, Rob Harris from Tarapanja and from Martin Ziegler, keeping an eye on the cricket at Headingley. Great stuff, guys. As ever, you can message us at Sport Unlocked on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. But for now, enjoy the sport coming up. Goodbye for now. <laughs>